Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I'm not sure which camera you're at. One of these three, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, welcome those of you who are here in this place. Um, can I tell you how blessed I am to be your pastor? I mean, that's, that's not a... Yes, yes, please, give me more. Uh, no, no, not me, you. No. No, I am blessed to be your pastor. We, we are in our ninth year here. We will celebrate nine years in August. It's hard to believe it's been almost a decade. Can you believe it's been 10 years? Where do you think most of this gray hair came from? <laughs> Raising my kids, of course. So, no, anyway, we're, we're so blessed to be here. We're blessed to be a part of this fellowship. Those of you online, we're blessed that you're joining us and that I get an opportunity to pastor you even in this venue. I mean, years before, we wouldn't have really had this opportunity. So I'm so glad that God has provided us with the resources and the capability necessary to reach you as well. So anyway, uh, I digress. Let's continue. We, we start a new series today. We were in the wilderness last month. Uh, with the Israelites. The book of Numbers, if you remember, was the passage of wilderness wandering. The Israelites had been brought to the promised land after coming out of the Exodus. They were standing on the precipice of the promised land. There were 12 spies that went into the land to scout out the region to see what it looked like. They came back after 40 days of checking out the land. They brought some of the produce back and um, and they all said, wow, it's abundant, it's amazing. It is truly a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of the spies said, yeah, we're not gonna be able to do it. The people there are way too big uh, and they'll squash us like bugs, pretty much. Two of the spies that came back, Joshua and Caleb, actually said, no, we can do it. God is for us, and if God's for us, there's nobody going to be against us. We can take this land. God wouldn't have led us here if he wasn't going to go there with us. So we need to remember the promises of God. So they actually decide to stay and not go conquer the land. They believe the 10 spies reports as opposed to the two. And as a matter of fact, they tried to kill Moses. Well, they didn't try to, but there were threats of killing Moses, who had supposedly led them into the wilderness to die there. Have you ever felt that way from some of your leaders? I hope not from me. <laughs> but have you ever felt that way, that you were led into the wilderness and that's where you were going to die? The only reason you die in the wilderness is because you're not willing to go into the promised land. Okay? And that generation wasn't. And so God said, fine. I'm not going to let you go, even if you want to. You've refused to trust me. You've refused my promises. I will give you what you want, which is to stay out here instead of going into there, where it's going to be really good. You ever done that with your kids? I promise you, you're going to have a lot of fun. No, I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm not going to do this. We have four kids, and we've at times have tried, we've had to make them do things because we knew they would love it. 
And we knew it was going to be safe and they weren't going to be harmed. And inevitably, after they come back, they're like, oh, I had such a great time. And if our kids... See, let me, let me back up. God doesn't force us like we as parents sometimes force our kids to do things, right? Now, you can debate with your parents, grandparents, whoever your guardian is. That's not what I'm getting at today. The truth of the matter is, we have a God who says, you know, I'm not going to make you choose me. I want you to. I want you to go into all I'm offering you, but if you're not willing to do that, then that's on you. And it breaks my heart because I know what's on the other side of this for you, but you're still not willing to do it. And so he says, for every day, this is going back to numbers, for every day that the spies were in the land of Canaan, the promised land, checking out the place, you're going to spend a year wandering in the wilderness. You know what's interesting about that? Right after that punishment was enacted, and God said, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. Here's the funny thing. God doesn't do like he did with Abraham, or excuse me, with uh, uh, Adam and Eve and set up flaming swords at any entrance into the land of Canaan. You know what he does? He withdraws his presence. He withdraws his protection. So the Israelites said, no, 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 no. We made a mistake. We'll go take the land. And guess what? They tried. They got the snot beat out of them. You know why? Because God said, I'm, I'm, I won't go with you. You've rejected me. You don't trust me. You don't believe in the promises I've made to you. Well, fine. And so, after a failed attempt, they ran back with their tail between their legs. And they stayed in the wilderness. Here's one of the cool things, though, about God in the wilderness See, though God wasn't going to be with them in the promised land, did you know for 40 years he was with them in the wilderness? He was with them even in the midst of their discipline and punishment. He gave them manna to eat because you think you can grow crops out in the desert lands and in the wilderness? Of course not. It's arid. It's dry. There's not much water. One of the times they were bickering over water, and this is why Moses wasn't able to enter the promised land, if you remember from last week, because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it so that the rock gave forth water. Because there's not a great supply of water in the desert. But even God can provide miracles in the desert for those who are stubborn because he loves them. His love always trumps his discipline because he disciplines those he loves. Now, we actually come on to not only the precipice of the promised land, but we move from Deuteronomy, which was the last book of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the law of Moses, whatever you want to call it, and we step into the promised land with Joshua. The baton of leadership, the authority of leadership has been passed on to Moses' assistant, Joshua, who was one of the spies to come back. Remember Caleb and Joshua? But now Joshua is the man of the hour. And he's able to now lead the Israelites in. But before doing so, they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you look at a map today, you'll see there's a Sea of Galilee in the northern region where modern-day Israel is. Jordan is to the right, Israel, modern-day Israel's to the left. The Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus walked on the water, has a river 
that not only is fed into it, but specifically the river from Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is the larger body of water in that region, is the Jordan River. So now imagine, in the land of Moab, which would have been just to the right of the Dead Sea on a map, there's about a million plus Israelites, men, women, and children in that region that had been wandering for years. A generation had died off, but they've continued to grow in number. They're awaiting to go into the promised land, and now's the time. The 40 years of wilderness wandering is up. Joshua's been given the leadership. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan, and there's a miracle yet to come in the book of Joshua where yet again the waters part. Not the Red Sea this time, and we're not going to look at that passage just yet, but the Jordan River so that they could walk across on dry ground. But before they go over, God has a conversation with Joshua. It's almost as if saying, okay, here's the deal. It's me and you, kid. And uh, I just want to remind you of a few things before you go into this land of promise, okay? And this is what he says. Joshua chapter 1, starting with verse 1. We're only going to look at nine verses today. It says, after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, my servant is dead, or Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River to the land I'm giving them. If you remember last week, Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, it's a very short passage of scripture. It says that God gave Moses an opportunity from Mount Nebo to look out over the promised land, this tall peak in the region or the mountains of Pisgah. And he looks out and he can see as far as the eye can see the land that God had promised the people. That's as close as he would get. And then it says that he walks, and we get this picture of him walking off alone into some of your versions of scripture say the plains of Moab down from the mountains and that God buried him there. And so now you have this God of Moses, the friend of Moses speaking to Joshua saying, he's, he's dead now. He's been buried. It's time to go. Verse three, I promise you, what I promised Moses. Oh, how reassuring is that? I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land that I have given you. From the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. Now, the Hittites were not in existence during Joshua's day. The, the Hittite Empire had risen to greatness sometime before that, but that region was still often known as the ancient Hittite Empire. Now, they were just a broken band of pagan wanderers that had built cities in that area. You had Philistines, you had the Perizzites, you have a bunch of ites in there. And, uh, and they were a broken up group of tribal people that worshipped various different gods. But the Hittites were the ones who had made that region great before they fell. And so he says the whole land of what used to be the Hittite empire will be yours. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. How would you like to have that promise? Because you can. People can attempt to stand against you, but if you have one that is greater than those that are in the world, 
No one could truly stand against you. See, we believe in the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy when we believe that there are enemies that stand against us. But there is no true eternal enemy that can stand against you if God is your God through Christ Jesus. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. How many of you believe that today? I hope you do, because I see a lot of people in the church, and I meet with a lot of people in the church that feel like God's failed them. Those of you at home, have you felt like God has failed you? Do you feel at times that God has abandoned you and he's nowhere to be found, that you can't feel him, see him, hear him? I know at times I've felt that way. But the deception of the enemy is so great See, God, I want, you, I want you to understand this very carefully. And I've said this before. God is not a feeling or an emotion. God created feelings and emotions. But God is not a feeling or an emotion. And I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't feel God. You don't have to feel God to believe in God and to know he's real. He's given us so much as a witness to who he is, even in his own creation, to prove his own existence. And as I mentioned last week, he doesn't give us every piece of the puzzle because now even Paul admits in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly or dimly. Have you ever been to some older, older homes, say historic homes of the early 1700s, 1800s, where you go to these places and you see the glass in the windows? Tell me with a glass, it's got bubbles in it sometimes, it looks like it has streaks, right? Because they didn't have the processes in the early days of the United States to get glass like we have today. And so the glass that they had was clear enough to get light in and to see some distorted image on the other side of it. Do you catch what I'm saying? So in Paul's day, they had glass too, and imagine 2,000 years ago, what the glass was like if it was pretty rough, you know, two, three hundred years ago. It was even worse. But it was enough. If you were a wealthy enough aristocrat, you could have glass in your home. Right? I don't know if you would have had glass windows, but you would have had glass things. And you could hold it up to the light. And now we see through a glass plate or glass window dimly, darkly. We see, we can see moving images on the other side, but we can't make it out completely. See, this is what God does. He gives us enough of himself to say, I'm here. Do you trust me? Do you trust that that image you see moving on the other side of that dimly lit glass is me? Well, I don't know. How do I know it's you? Well, he gives us his word. The reason we are falling apart as a nation of people is because we've lost our moorings and our way. We don't know where to anchor our truth anymore. And the sad state of affairs is that's happening all too often in our churches across this land. You would think of all places, the church would be the last vestige of hope that is anchored in truth. But when we begin to compromise the truth of God's word, then we lose our bearings. 
I was talking, I meet with a group of guys on Saturday mornings uh, for breakfast, and we, we, we talk about different things, biblical things, and, and we try to encourage one another. And, and the interesting thing is it came up yesterday, and Matt McCarrier was a part of that, so I don't think he minds if I call him out. But Matt and I, uh, Matt had brought up, it's almost like when you build, the church is built on a solid foundation, but the problem in building on a solid foundation is if you don't, if you don't align yourself perfectly with the cornerstone of the capstone, the cornerstone is the first block laid in a foundation, and every other block is laid off of that block. If it is not perfect, perfectly square and in alignment, what's going to happen to the other blocks? It's going to be off. Now, we have a perfect cornerstone, the New Testament tells us, and it's Jesus Christ, built on that solid foundation. He is the perfect cornerstone. The problem, I think, with the church is, in our culture at least, in many arenas, is that we've decided to do it our own way, to tweak the building methods a little bit, and our block laying has gotten off. I know I worked with a mason once when we were helping to build an addition onto the previous church I was a pastor at in Ohio, and I watched this guy masterfully lay this block. I mean, it was just like second nature to him, and he would have these strings latched on that would be plump, the, the, the line to which he would strike every other block off on. But the, the corner had to be perfect. The corner was what determined the rest of the line for each direction. And I watched him. He had his level. Every time he'd lay a block, he'd make sure it was level. And then he'd, he'd hit it here and he'd do this. And then if it didn't have enough mortar under it, he'd stack a little more mortar under that block and then tap it and tap it, get it just level so it was in perfect alignment with the cornerstone. Church, when we began to say God's word isn't enough or God's word is imperfect, then we basically have taken that striking line off the cornerstone and we've decided we're just going to throw blocks on this and we're going to eyeball it. Have you ever done that? I just, I, that kind of looks good, yeah. But the problem is we're all cross-eyed. Without Christ, we don't have perfect vision. And when we strike a line by eyeballing it, we mess up every time. Construction people, am I right? I haven't even gotten to my points yet. Let me get to this real quick. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess the land that I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you, do not deviate from them. Just a little bit. Just a smidge. What about a quarter of a degree? How about an eighth or sixteenth of a degree? Can I just be a little deviation? Just a smidge. Because after a while, if you are even a sixteenth of an inch off, what happens? You're going to be really off eventually. Why do you think people get to the end of their lives and say, I wish I could go back and do it over again? Because they realize they've been a sixteenth of an inch off since the day they met Christ. They were never told that when they came to Christ, that was the starting line, not the finish line. Why do we have grow as our mission 
and it's grow continually. Can't forget that. Know him intimately, grow in him continually, and go for him daily. Go for him into all the world, making disciples of all nations. The growing continually is an ongoing process to the point that you breathe your last breath. Do not deviate from it at all. Don't turn either to the right or the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. What's he referring to? What is the only Bible Joshua had? You mean he didn't have Paul's letters in the book of Revelation? No, those guys hadn't even come onto the scene yet. He had the first five books of the Bible called the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. That, were the, that was the word of instruction given to Moses directly by God, then given by Moses through God to the people. And now it's been given to Joshua. The baton has been handed on. Don't deviate from it. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Oh, so if I'm a faithful believer in Christ, no bad thing's ever going to happen to me. No. But you will be able to go through it with success. And let's just, let's just say... By some sheer chance, you encounter persecution, severe persecution at that, that leads you to martyrdom, dying for your faith. Have you failed? Have you? Because what reward awaits you if you remain faithful and true to God? So, Again, I've mentioned, I think I mentioned this in my Tuesday Bible study online this past week. There's a book that, I, that really changed my outlook on death called Imagine Heaven by John Burke. He's a pastor. You've probably heard me talk about it from the pulpit here. And, and uh, I had lost one of my closest friends that I was, just got really close to in Florida. He passed away the year before, the year of our moving here. And... Um, went down for his funeral. It was just devastating. Well, we had the privilege to go back and represent North Main Street Church of God at Warner Southern College in Lake Wells, Florida. And we ended up staying with his wife, who was also our close friend. And uh, I had heard this guy in a podcast, John Burke. And I was just intrigued by the research he had done on near-death experiences. You may think I'm a quack, but just hear me out on this. And so I thought, oh, I should get that book. And so in the airport, wouldn't you believe it, in one of the bookstores on a stand there was Imagine Heaven, several volumes right there. And I thought, it's a sign from heaven. So I grabbed the book, bought it, and I devoured that book that whole weekend we were there. And the interesting thing is he backs everything up with scripture and he shows us that some of these near, actually all of these near-death experiences are pointing to a reality that's greater and beyond the reality we live in now. It, 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 people that had experienced those near-death experiences that had seen a glimpse of the other side say, it is more real there than here. That here, it's like you're living in a fog or a dream. But when you are there and all the blinders are taken off and every sense of your being is heightened to the sense of perfection, 
This seems like the dream. So let me ask you the question. If you remain faithful to God, even though someone in this world takes your life, do you succeed? Yes. We need to be reminded of that. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. That is a command. That's not a, hey, if you don't mind, don't be afraid or discouraged. Hey, you think it's okay if you're not afraid or discouraged? You think you could do that? Now, what does God say to Joshua? This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Courage, and you won't hear this from other people, courage is the absence of fear. I've heard several other philosophical minds and authors say courage is not the absence of fear, it's just the bravery to step into the fight. No, courage is the absence of fear because of the way that God tells us throughout his whole of the word of God is do not be afraid. The only one we are to fear is God himself and that actually being translated from the Hebrew is called reverence or this awful presence of God to stand in awestruck wonder of your creator and to fall on your face before him that is the only fear the believer in God is allowed so this command do not be afraid or discouraged and I see it too much in the church is because we allow the enemy enough leeway in our lives to have a toehold a foothold or a stronghold in our lives that we are driven by the fears of this world instead driven by the holy awe and wonder of God that drives us forward. Do not fear or be dismayed, some of the versions say. Do not fear or be discouraged. Are you discouraged? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of anything? It's a good question. It's a test of our faith and our trust. If we fear that shows a lack of trust, what did the 12, the 10 spies come back and say? Out of fear? We can't take the land. The people are too big. And they neglected to see how big their God was that parted the Red Sea. I often am just, I stand mind boggled. But I think if I was one of them, how easy it would be to fall into doubt because I do it daily. I do it daily. I wrestle against flesh and blood when I shouldn't because there are principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark world that seek my demise. But when I have the full armor of God on in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us, I can stand even in the heat of battle and not be overtaken. See, the point here is there's peace in the promises of God. And let me quickly look at this. Did you notice in these first nine verses of Joshua, there are three instances where God says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Do you know each of those is successive in each of their points? 
And it leads us to the crux of the real issue where God is empowering Joshua, empowering Joshua, and empowering Joshua. There's a number of sequences, the number three in the Bible. When you see a sequence of threes, it means completeness or wholeness, okay? You often hear the angels singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. You see these what we call triplets in the Bible a lot. And so when God is saying things in triplets, what do you think he means? You can trust me in this. He would only really need to say it once, but for good measure, he says it three times so that Joshua will never forget what is he supposed to do? Be strong and take courage. Be strong and take courage, the first one. For you are the one. Did you see that in the verse of scripture? Be strong and take courage for you are the one. Let's read that again. Joshua 1 verse 6. Be strong and courageous for you are the one who will lead these people to possess the land I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. How would you love to hear that from God? You are the one. You are the one, and you get one, and you get one, and you, I'm not, I'm Oprah today. Check under your seats. There's nothing there. There could be something there, but I didn't put it there, all right? All right. Here's the truth of the matter. As much as God said that to Joshua, he says that to you and I. But the sad truth of the matter is we neglect to really believe that. I'm insignificant. There's no reason I'm here. What's my purpose in life? When you say those kind of things, you're in essence dismissing the God who created you, who knit you together in your mother's womb. And the author of the psalm says, you are fearfully and what? Do you believe that? A couple of you do. Because it's hard for many of us to really articulate that. Because you believed a lie, whether it's from somebody who was an abuser emotionally, physically, or otherwise in your life. Or maybe it was a school teacher when you were in elementary school. Or maybe it was a grandparent, or an aunt, or an uncle, or just an innocent, well not innocent, but a bystander who said, well you're stupid. And they plant these seeds of doubt in your mind. But God says, I created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You need to know that full well. The psalmist says, I know that full well. Do you know that full well? I struggle with that. I've had naysayers in my own life. I've had people to say that I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, and doggone it, people don't like me. If you remember the old Saturday Night Lives, that might trigger something in you. I want you to consider the proof in the New Testament. You say, yeah, Brandon, that was in the Old Testament. That was for Joshua. And you're right. Scholars today, and being a biblical scholar myself, I want to stay true to the Word of God. That specific promise was for Joshua. But I also want to show you evidence that that proof is for you as well. If you go to John chapter 15, it's not going to be on your screen. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, as I have been already. John 15 Jot this down, verses 15 and six, or verses uh, 16 and 17. That may even be in your sermon notes. 
Listen to what Jesus says. I love this. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, he's talking to his 12 disciples, but as much as he talks to his 12 disciples, the timeless word of Jesus' lips still speaks today. You did not choose me. Let's get that clear. I chose you. Now, that on the surface level sounds pretty harsh, but when you really dig into knowing the heart of God, and the heart of God is love, When Jesus, the embodiment of God's love, says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And you know that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He was in the beginning with the creator, and he was the creator. Colossians, we are told that everything exists in him and through him and holds together by him. We know all of this through the testimony of the word of God. And now, in that perspective, you didn't choose him. He chose you. How liberating is that? You are the one. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. The great American essayist, lecturer, philosopher, and poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there is always someone to tell you that you're wrong. Trust me, I know this. There are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe your critics are right, to map out a course of action and to follow it to an end requires some of the same courage that a soldier needs in battle. Peace has its victories, but it takes brave men and women to win them. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You are the one. And this isn't some psychological positive, power of positive thinking junk. This is the word of God. The holy God of heaven and earth who created you says, I choose you. And you can be one of those 10 spies that say, I don't believe it. And you may be condemned to wander in a wilderness of your own making for the rest of your life. There is only freedom out of the wilderness through Christ Jesus who parts the seas of difficulty in our life. And if you're not willing to go there, then you will die in the wilderness. Secondly, be strong and courageous. Obey all the instructions. This is, this is pertinent, pivotal. It is, it is what you need to understand. Again, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction of all of this, which I hadn't intended to go off, it wasn't even in my notes. I should have saved it for this point. But the truth of the matter is, when we deviate in the slightest bit from all of the instructions, what happens? We become what's called compromised. I hate the word compromise. 
I hate the word compromise. You'll never hear me talk about it in counseling with other people. It's not about compromise. It's about resolution. It's about resolve. It's about reconciliation. Because compromise indicates that somebody's losing and another person's winning. Do you understand what I'm saying? How, how well does that bode in a conversation when you're counseling with two people? Because it takes two to tango, right? One may be worse than the other, but still, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And so, what part do we have to play in relationship building? More specifically, what part do we have to play in relationship building with God? Because we stand before an all-holy, all-perfect, and almighty God who has never sinned a day in his life. And he's given us instructions. So if God is perfect, what are his instructions? A couple of you believe that. If God is perfect, what are his instructions? God's word is perfect. And if God's word is perfect, then it is the perfect foundation to build our lives on. So if we obey all of his instructions, then it'll go well. It doesn't mean your life will be perfect, but it'll go well. So no matter what this life dishes at you, it still will go well because the end result is victory over sin and death. That's, when we get stuck in this being the everlasting of everlastings, then our mind is not on the proper things. This world will fade away. The kingdoms and the nations of this world rise and fall. They've done it for centuries, for millennia. If you put your hope and your stock in anything other than God, when that thing fails you, your life comes crumbling down. Have you ever had that happen? The person you love, your spouse, your boyfriend, your fiance, your best friend, your parent, what happens when they don't live up to your expectation? Right? Your world comes crashing in or you get wounded by them. The only solution to overcome the woundedness is to put your expectation in one who is perfect. When you make somebody else, when you allow somebody else to sit on that pedestal, and I said this last week, I think, be it your pastor or any other person in your life, you're setting not only them up for failure, but yourself. God and God alone has reserved this place in your heart for him. It's what Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician and philosopher of France, said is in essence this God-shaped space in every one of us. We who have been created in God's image by this perfect, all-loving God says, I have a perfect way for you. And if you reject that perfect way, you're in essence saying, that's not good enough. But when, perfection of the, when the perfection of God and his word is not good enough for you, where else do you go? Because nothing else is perfect. Be strong and courageous. Obey all the instructions. Even the ones you don't like. We live in a day and age where political correctness and any number of things is at the forefront and it's being shoved in our face all the time. Let me tell you something. If you are a follower of the way who is Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in the word of God, you are politically incorrect. 
You will never be politically correct. Did you know where the terminology political correctness came from? Communist Russia under Marxism. Do your research. Look up Lenin and Stalin. They were the first to use those terminologies in modern history. Do you know what it meant to be politically correct in communist Russia? You had to toe the political party line of communism. And if you were not correct in your politics, you were politically incorrect. Now, we've taken that and adopted it. and It's starting, you know, scratching the surface a little bit. I'm not saying we're leading, going down the road of communism. You can determine that on your own. But there are eerie similarities in repeating certain cycles in history. Do you know when we get to the book of Judges here in a few weeks, do you know there was a fourfold cycle that happened in the book of Judges over centuries? Do you know what happened there? Sin, slavery, sorrow, and salvation. You see it, you, I mean, seriously, you read the book of Judges from chapter one all the way to the end of that whole book, you see them going through this cycle. And after several generations, they would go through the cycle again. There'd be a judge come onto the scene that was holy and righteous, would point them to obey all of the instructions of God, and the people would be like, where were those? We've so strayed away from the truth of God's word. Oh, no. And they'd rip their clothes, and they would put ash on their heads and mourning and weep over their sinful state of being. And then they would see a revival in the land and there would be salvation. And then after a while, I don't know why it is in cultures that salvation isn't enough that we begin to turn to our own ways. Oh, it's okay. If, you know what? It's okay to do this one little thing. That's not a big deal, right? I mean, it's really not that far removed from God's instructions. It's actually how we interpret the instructions, right? I interpret it this way. You interpret God's word that way. We're good. Do you think in heaven we'll all be pitted against each other with various different interpretations of God and his truth? No, because the very same writer of the, the letter to the Corinthians who said, now we see through a glass dimly, also said, but then it'll all make sense. I'll be face to face. It's like the blinders will come off and everything will be in perfect clarity. Do you remember what I was telling you about John Burke's book, Imagine Heaven? That those in that reality that get a glimpse into that space, and we know that is the truth because Paul himself even said he knew of someone that experienced the third heaven that scholars debate about today, but we know that even the writer of Revelation was caught up in this vision with the Holy Christ and saw things that are somewhat unspeakable that you can't even articulate in words, that that reality is truly the reality. This is the dream. And it's not about just doing things for God. Let me, let me get that out of your minds right quickly. Oh, so you're telling me it's about a works righteousness thing. If you even know what that is, you've been in church too long. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. You can never be in church too long. You're saying, yes, you can. All right, so here's the deal. Let's speed this up. All right, so works righteousness. It means that what you do earns your salvation. 
That's the whole idea behind that. If I do enough good things, I pay enough money to the church or to all these special agencies that are promoting the gospel of Christ, if I, if I serve at a soup kitchen, if I do all of these things, and when I get to heaven, my good deeds will be weighed against my bad deeds, and my good deeds hopefully will outweigh my bad deeds, and then I'll get an entrance into heaven. That's called works righteousness. That is nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. That is a farce. It's heretical. It is a false teaching. Okay? What should come from a life lived in Christ is good works. Jesus says they will know you by your love for one another. They will know you are my, my followers by your love for one another. Love is not a thing that we say. It is something we do. It is an action. When you are with Christ and in Christ, when you know him intimately, out of that relationship flows a manifestation of gifts and abilities that God empowers you through his Holy Spirit to do his will and his ways and his work. So when you obey his instructions, when you follow his commands, you are in essence saying, I want to learn more about you. I got married to Sarah Lee. We're on 22 years of marriage this June. Woo! 22 years. They've not always been easy. Many of them have been super hard, and she will attest to that. I'm not telling you something that's a shock to her or me or you. Well, it may be a shock to you. I don't know. 22 years, there have been times it's been rough that we wanted to throw in the towel. You ever been there? And in this relationship, after 22 years, I know her better and love her more than the day I first met her. And that's not something to say to make you feel all gooey and gushy inside or to make her feel. It's the truth. And the reality is, if I didn't know her any better, there'd be a problem in the relationship, wouldn't there? So when you first came to Christ, if you've made that decision for him, and, and think back to when that was, when you first made that decision for Christ, where you said, Lord, I surrender my life to you. Forgive me of my sin, please, and come into my life. When you said that and you surrendered your life to him, think back to that time. Are you closer to him now than you were then? And the question is, if you're not, why not? The reality is, if you are not following in his ways, reading his book, spending time with him, your relationship's not going to grow deeper. You're not going to learn anything more about him. If I didn't spend time knowing my wife, speaking truth, struggling with her through different things, and her struggling with me, we wouldn't know anybody, any better about each other 22 years later than we did when we first met. See, this is a relationship. It's not a religion. It's not just something you do on Sunday mornings from your home or here. It's not just, it is a 24-7 thing. I'm not just Sarah Lee's husband 40 hours a week. Do, do you understand this? Guess what? I am bound to a covenant agreement with my wife to love and to cherish in sickness and in health. Till when? Till death. When I come to Christ, I am bound in a covenant relationship to obey his instructions, to grow deeper in a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for me. And to allow him to point me in the direction he desires for me to go, the purpose that he has laid on my life. And if you don't know that purpose, the question is, are you leaning into him? Do you know his voice? 
And if you don't know his voice, then how do you distinguish between his voice and your voice or any other voice in society? What, is the, what does it say? Obey all my instructions. So that when a voice comes up that might say something contrary to his instructions, is it the voice of God? Our, okay. When a voice comes up that contradicts God's word, is it God's voice? No. Praise the Lord. And those of you at home, I heard you too. How do I know the voice of God? I have to be so intimately into his word and in through prayer with him that when he speaks or when someone else speaks on his behalf, I know it's him and not just a farce or a false prophet. Lastly, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Where is, uh, he's with me when? Where? Say that again. Wherever I go. Even if I don't feel him? Yes. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of God to Joshua. And the timeless word of God is for you today as well. When you've surrendered to him, when you are faithful to him, not only is he faithful to you, he is more faithful to you than you've ever been to him. And he promises this. And I, I, again, church, hear me out on this. I see many of you not living this way. You don't believe that. Now, where you go can be a good or a bad thing. And when God goes with you to some bad things that you yourself go to, he's that still small voice in the background going, uh, 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 don't do, uh, uh, don't, please don't. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do this thing. You know it's not going to be good for you. And you can do one of two things. That God who goes with you wherever you go, you can heed his voice and turn a 180, what we call repentance, and go the other way. Or you could continue in your own course of behavior, squelching that voice, silencing that voice, or ignoring that voice and do your own thing. Do you know what that'll do? It further separates you from a God you've grown accustomed to knowing intimately. Would you rather be close to God or away from God? So what are you going to do? I, I, in our marriages... Same idea. This is why a lot of marriage language is used between the body of Christ and Christ himself in the New Testament. Is, is I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize that relationship. I don't want to be an adulterer, so to speak. I want to be right with him. I don't want to do anything that would shame him or cause him dis distress or hurt. Have Sarah Lee and I done things toward each other in the heat of the moment that have hurt us and wounded each other? Yes. I'm not happy to say that, but it's the truth. In relationships, we can sometimes not only be our own worst enemy, but lash out to the ones we love the most and really hurt them. The interesting thing is often that happens is the one that loves us the most is willing to stick through it with us in spite of that, to weather those storms and to hopefully come out on the other side better than we were. Just as God promised Joshua he would be with him wherever he went, God promises his people today that he's with them and he has not forsaken them. As our worship team comes forward, and let me give you, how many of you remember a guy by the name of Paul Harvey, radio personality? 
And that's, don't know, that's uh, Walter Conkite. Uh, <laughs> oopsie. But you know Paul Harvey. You know who I'm talking about. Okay. And, oh, that was getting ready to say that. Thank you. And here's the rest of the story. Okay, here we go. Paul Harvey told a story many years ago about a courageous young man who became a local hero. This is a true story. He became a local hero in his hometown. Uh, he describes how one summer morning as Ray Blankenship was preparing his breakfast, he gazed out the window and saw a small girl be swept down in the rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his Andover, Ohio home. Blankenship knew that further down the stream, this ditch disappeared with a roar underneath a road and then emptied into the main culvert, which then flushed out at a different location. So what does Ray do in this moment? He could have said, there's nothing I can do. But he doesn't. Here's what he does. He dashed out the door. He raced along the ditch, trying to get ahead of the floundering child. Once he got ahead of her, he hurled himself into the deep, churning water. He resurfaced and was able to grab onto the child's arm. The story goes that they tumbled end over end, and within about three feet of the yawning culvert, Ray's free hand felt something, possibly a rock, protruding from the bank. He grabbed it and he clung desperately to it, but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away and down the culvert. He thought to himself, if I can just hang on until help comes, we'll be all right. But he did better than that. By the time the fire department arrived, Blankenship had found the strength through adrenaline or whatever process to pull his, this girl to safety and pull himself out of the churning water. On April the 12th of 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard's Silver Life-Saving Medal. The award is fitting for this selfless man was even greater, a greater risk to himself than most people realize because he couldn't swim. When your desire to do the right thing overrides any fear that you have, that's courage. And you may be here today struggling with some of the life's most difficult circumstances you've ever had to go through. I don't know what circumstance you're facing today. I don't know what difficulty life has thrown your way. I don't know what your struggles or your addictions or any other thing in your life is. But God knows. And he says, I've chosen you. Do you hear me? I've chosen you. You are the one. Be strong and courageous. Come to me. This world needs more men and women of faith who are willing to trust in the promises of God, to take a risk for him, and to believe that his ways are best even when the rest of the world mocks. We need more men and women of faith who are willing to carry their cross through the jeering crowds of naysayers, knowing that it ultimately leads to freedom in Christ. The world needs more men and women who are willing to point the way confidently and courageously to the truth of God's word, who is Jesus Christ himself, standing in the gap for the lost and fighting the good fight, unashamedly, politically incorrect. And finally, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know we need now more than ever before to be strong and courageous, remembering the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior, who is with us wherever we go. 
I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions, but if the Holy Spirit has touched your heart in any way today, please come before him and surrender. Or surrender to him the thing that you've been holding on to that's caused you great fear. Be strong and courageous. Know the Lord has chosen you, that he cares for you, that he loves you. He wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross if that were not the case. Let's pray. Father, in this place, I know there is brokenness represented. For we cannot live in a world that is broken by sin and death and not be affected by it. We know the reality is that we've all sinned and fallen short of your glorious standard, but you still love us anyway. You've given us your son, Jesus Christ, so that those who believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And that is the reason you and I, church, can stand strong and courageous to not fear or be discouraged. Oh Lord, remind us of that every day to walk in this humble walk of faith with confidence knowing that it's in Christ that we are made perfect just as he is perfect. We surrender our lives today, our church to you today, everything we do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.